Whoever said sequels aren't as good as the original clearly didn't read The Contractor and Death Spiral by R. St. Hilaire. Join us today as we explore the action, adventure, and of course, the jiu-jitsu with the author and co-host on this episode. From the dojo to the octagon, we bring you the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast! Welcome to another edition of the Jiu-Jitsu Master Podcast. This is your co-host Sri Pendikatla, and with me is co-host Shihan Russ St. Hilaire, 7th degree black belt in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu. Welcome back, Shihan. We're uh, uh, going to do another podcast, and I'm um, looking forward to talking to you today. Well, Happy New Year, Sri. We've made it through another year, thank goodness, and I'm excited to talk with you today about the second book in the Contractor series. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, it's been a crazy uh, couple of years now, and we always look for a silver lining, and one of the silver linings I had was uh, been able to uh, actually sit down with an actual book in my hand, and that happened to be uh, the one you wrote, which was first was the Contractor the sandbox and then followed up by the contractor the death spiral um so i was happy to do that i actually picked up a hard copy of it versus uh you know the i i'm kind of still old school like that so uh i enjoy yeah, but it feels it. good sometimes to have that paper book in your hand and turn a page absolutely and and, and maybe one day i can uh, uh get it get it autographed absolutely <laughs> So um, what made you want to write a, a second book after the first one, and, and actually a, a series for that matter? I just always had in my head that there was more to the story. Um, you know, after all of the work that I did on the first book, which, you know, we mentioned in uh, an earlier podcast, was woven uh, around the adventures of uh, a friend that um, was a former Navy SEAL and then became a private military contractor. Uh, I wanted to develop the character further um, beyond that first book. Uh, the first book was based so much on you know historical uh, events that I wanted to take the opportunity to write uh, a follow-up that became more fiction. It, it kept the same themes and characters and, um, you know, still a, a private military contractor, but I wanted to have the freedom now to start, you know, weaving fictional uh, storylines. And, you know, as soon as I started thinking about a second book, I, I started to think about a third book and, and how would the whole um, story arc of this main character, Nick Branson, develop over time as, you know, as he leaves the military and he becomes a private military contractor and then as the Gulf War ends. And, you know, so how, how does that character develop and what does he continue to do with his life? So that's what gave me the idea to continue on to a, a second book. For our listeners that are just tuning in, and if you haven't heard any of the podcasts before, or have, you should probably check out the podcast right before this one where we introduced the uh, first of the series, The Contractor, The Sandbox, and you'll get a better sense and idea of um, what the synopsis is and kind of what went into uh, writing it. But, you know, feel free to keep going. I know you, you're kind of making this into a series, but was that always in the in the plans when you first started writing or that come about organically and, and versus like yeah, writing a, a giant like epic novel um bible type of book that's like thousand plus pages no no it came it came along organically um you know i wrote the first book kind of as a, a 
a project and I really wanted to get those stories out there. And I wanted my friend to see how I, I made a fictional novel from some of his adventures. And then, you know, that, that book was out there and sort of sat around for, for a number of years. Um, and I think there were a couple of motivations. Um, one of the motivations was uh, the, the main character, uh, Nick Branson, is, again, based off of a real person. That real person's father, um, whenever I talked with him, would say, hey, when are you writing another book? Uh, so, you know, he was always there sort of bugging me. Um, and then there were, you know, a, a, a few things that I, I saw on the news that kind of made me think, man, that would be something that our main character, Nick, would be involved in. And, and then I just started to think, okay, listen, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tackle this second book and, and let's see what we can do. And went through the very similar process of, of coming up with a, a storyline and, and writing out you know paragraphs per chapter and developing characters and all of that before I started writing. Um, I also, as I had mentioned in a previous podcast, that, that sort of forced me to go back and do a second edition of the first book just to make sure that we had um, continuous storylines and that there was continuity of, of characters and themes and everything, um, which I did. So there was kind of double the work to get the second book out. But yeah, I, it just kind of came along organically. And, and then I knew once I was writing in the middle of writing the second book that it was going to be a trilogy. There was going to be a third book. So um, that that's how I got started. One thing I, I noticed right off the bat was the voice seemed a little different than the first yes. one. Yes. I'm glad you noticed that. So um, as I was beginning to write the second book, I really started thinking about the three book series and how the first book was written as if a narrator was telling you the story of Nick Branson and his adventures. And so then in the second book, what I decided to do was um, have it as if Nick Branson was telling you his own stories. So you, you're still getting narrative, but you're getting narrative as if um, Nick was relaying uh, these adventures to you. And, and every once in a while, um, he'll even, you know, break the fourth wall and talk directly to the audience um, as readers. Uh, but, but essentially, it's a narrative. And, and then I knew I wanted the third book, um, which I am very close to finishing, to actually be sort of in the ultra first person where you are actually living the adventure as if you were Nick Branson um, as you're reading. So things are happening in real time and he's having real thoughts and having real reaction to what's occurring. And, and you as the reader are experiencing that. So there's sort of an arc of voice from the narrative to the main character narrative to sort of an ultra first person. Oh, I can't say I um, uh, follow all of that. Uh, it, it seems a little bit uh, more sophisticated than my <laughs> my layperson uh, can uh, can imagine, but I certainly enjoyed um, both books and for their uh, literary aspects. Could you talk a little bit about what your reasoning was to morph it or evolve it that way? Well, first of all, I, I just I find it entertaining that you're not always reading the same exact you know thing over and over again, right? There could be three books where somebody is just telling you the ongoing saga of Nick Branson. Um, or, you know, you can you can take on these different voices and it reveals things. So in this book uh, that we're talking about now, The Contractor Death Spiral, um, we are now starting to see more about how Nick feels 
and thinks about things and feels about himself and, and the people around him. We, we see how he thinks about his relationships with, uh, you know, various other military contractors and other characters. Um, we, we kind of get to understand that he's got a little bit of a, a wry sense of humor, you know, almost uh, almost Deadpoolish um, in in the way he he thinks about things and the way he expresses himself uh, under stress and and when he's frustrated. Uh, and he's actually a pretty funny guy um, that you start to learn, you know, in this second book. And then I just wanted to to take it a step, you know, further. Um, you know, maybe I described it a little too technically in, in, in writing sense when I just described it, but let's think of the third book as if you were experiencing virtual reality. Like you put on those goggles and you're, and you're stepping into a video game instead of sitting back and seeing that video game on your TV, you're, you're part of it. And I wanted to make the third book that because it just gave a different dimension, not only to the story and to the action and adventure, um, but also to, you know, to the characters themselves. So that, that's why I thought about doing the three different voices across the three different books. Oh, yeah, no, it was it was totally a compliment. Sorry if it didn't uh, sound like that, because um, it, that's really a testament to, to the breadth and depth of your talents to, you know, just take a book and then morph and evolve the uh, even the voice itself um, across as uh, as the characters and the development and the plots, everything starts to starts evolving. So, uh, no, I'm very impressed by it. Shian. Well, thanks. One of the other changes that I noticed uh, that you introduced a lot more branches of the military that I wasn't familiar with at all, DSS being one of them. And I, I think you also really presented a very good historical perspective as well as an inside look today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure, sure. So one of the themes that I wanted to have in the second book is, you know, the continued career of the main character. So in the first book, you learn a lot about his Navy SEAL career and then how he moved from that to become a private military contractor in Iraq in high-risk situations. In the next book, uh, Nick has taken a little break from that, but still wants to stay in the protective industry. So he is now doing um, high-level executive protection, almost diplomatic protection, um, involved with the ambassador uh, in Turkey. So, you know, there are private military contractors that are involved with government officials in other countries providing them protection. Um, the main character's real-life counterpart has done quite a bit of that also. Uh, so I wanted to evolve him sort of out of that military world and more into um, sort of the government and civilian world in, in the second book. So, yeah, you are introduced to other... Um, areas of the protection world. Now, the DSS isn't military. The DSS is a government um, civilian organization, the Diplomatic Security Services, and they provide um, protection, uh, among other jobs that they do. They provide uh, protection to dignitaries and government officials. They work very closely with the Secret Service, who we all think of as a protective service, but also does a lot of other things besides protection. So I wanted to introduce, uh, I wanted to introduce that. Um, I wanted to show sort of how the diplomatic security services often work in tandem with private security services when um, protecting, you know, government officials, you know, domestically and abroad. 
so I wanted to introduce some of these new groups and these new characters, which, you know, now that you've read it, you recognize some of these characters are based off of um, real people that, that you and I both know. So it gave a, a good depth and realism to some of these characters. Oh, it was uh, it was a bit of a riot for me when uh, uh, when I recognized some of the names and characters uh, for people, real life people that I know. But um, what would you actually could you talk about what um, the, those uh, individuals whose <laughs> whose names or their characters uh, uh, end up in your book, what their reactions are when they when they read them <laughs> themselves? Um, you know, I think they're very entertained by it because again, you know, I'm capturing the essence of the person. Um, certainly not talking about things that they actually do in real life or, you know, anything like that. Um, but you know, I, it, it describes what they look like, sort of their, their characteristics, things that would stick out in real life. If you maybe just met them for the first time, those are the, that's the level I try to capture, um, in the book. And then I also trust, try to imagine, knowing them, how would they react in these situations, which, you know, they've never been in in their real life, but it, it, it's just kind of fun to write. You know, when I think of a specific character, um, you know, there's one uh, diplomatic security uh, services agent uh, named Dave in the book, um, who is somebody that we know in real life. And, uh, you know, I like to think about his personality, you know, him being a very big, strong, well-trained person in real life, in both jujitsu and in fitness and in firearms and all these other things. Uh, I mean, he's a pretty hard charger in real life, but he's also sort of this very quiet, um, you know, wry sense of humor kind of guy uh, who, you know, I liked to imagine being faced with these situations and, and how he would react. So of course that's fiction, but, but it does make it fun to write. And, um, you know, I definitely have had uh, some comments back from some of the people who recognize themselves. Um, some of them saying, I thought it was hilarious. Um, some of them saying, I wish I was that badass. <laughs> um, you know, they, I think everybody was, was pretty entertained by just, you know, seeing who they recognized the, as themselves in the book, but in, in such a fictional way that they almost could enjoy a, a good fictional ride w with themselves as the character. Yeah, it was very funny to see that. And I also noticed that there's even more use of additional languages uttered in the second book by different characters. And I think there was some uh, Turkish in addition to Arabic, which you had in your first novel. I was wondering, um, you know, there's always something new I learn about you, Shihan, but how well versed are you in, in these languages that are uh, other than English? It, because I noticed there was not just standard things that people say that you can pick up off the internet, but they were colloquialisms and sayings that you had in the book. Uh, and fortunately, I don't speak any of those languages, but how, how well do you know them and uh, have others told you how accurate um, your depictions of those are? So I don't know them very well. And let me tell you how I went about writing them. So as part uh, of the executive protection work that I very occasionally do, um, I like to keep a file that has probably about a hundred phrases from all the major languages in the world in that file. And if I know that I'm going to be dealing with people who speak that language, it's always very you know courteous and professional to know um, phrases, how to ask directions, talk about ordering food, going to hotels, um, 
you know, driving vehicles, you know, standard greetings, asking questions, all of that. So I have a file that has all of these phrases from many, many different languages in it. Um, a few of those, uh, so I did have some Arabic and I did have um, Turkish in, in the file, and I pulled a few of those phrases out. But then there were also specific areas and specific um, cities, which as you know, in uh, many parts of the world, uh, not quite like in America, you can travel 50 miles, 100 miles to another town and they have a, a different dialect or they say different um, types of, of uh, you know, verbs and nouns, even though the basic structure is the same. So um, when I knew I was writing about specific areas, it was just simply research. Go online, research the area, research the people, the cultures, and find the phrases that I felt would give the scene at least some realism that people that were interacting with each other may have said such and such a phrase to each other, or even people that like the DSS agents or the contractors that were coming into an area, they themselves would want to be able to, you know, be polite and use phrases that um, would allow them to, you know, have interactions with the local people. So that's what I tried to do in those scenes, but I, I in no way speak the, those languages uh, in anything more than phrases. Oh, well, still, yeah, you have a way of taking something that you do extraordinary and talking about it as if it was, um, you know, something that everybody would be doing. I don't know too many people who have a, a file of all the different languages in a, in a, in a file. So, um, you know, more uh, more respect to you, Shiana. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> um, I noticed that there's a, a lot more, also more humor and sarcasm in Death Spiral. And even more so than the first. And, and I was chuckling to myself on a number of occasions. So if that was your intent, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you, you, you've succeeded. Um, but was the It absolutely was. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> well, so I was going to ask, like, was the injection of that heightened humor and sarcasm a choice that you made to add to the comedic effect? Or was it an evolution of the character of Nick Branson himself after seeing the 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 shit as you uh as you as i'm quoting your um book in the in the past as you put it um as he maybe becomes more jaded or or sharpens his wit so that it's absolutely both um one of the things and i i think i, I mentioned it earlier is i wanted this character development as he moves from one um time in his life to another as he grows older as he gets more mature as he experiences more things so yes you know he he does take on some sarcastic attitudes towards things he is jaded he's been exposed to conspiracies you know so now he's always sort of wary about what's going on behind the scenes you know he knows he doesn't really see the big picture all the time um, he also begins in this book, you know, whereas he's almost super heroic in the first book, he, he starts to talk about, uh, you know, his, his weak points and his failings and, and, and it really makes the character more realistic, I think, but also just from an entertainment standpoint too. Um, I wanted to develop in that direction also. I want people to enjoy reading it. I don't want it to be so just buried in military and jargon and conspiracy that, you know, you have to be an ultra suspense, you know, reader to really enjoy it. I wanted anybody to enjoy it and learn things from it, learn about places, learn about peoples and cultures, be entertained, laugh a lot, also kind of feel like you're part of the high speed chase or whatever is going on and, and sort of feel the adrenaline rush. So I really thought about that quite a bit as I was uh, writing and rewriting the book that I wanted people to feel that, 
we're really getting to see what Nick is like here. I mean, he's not just this super badass soldier. He's also just a person and, you know, he gets sick and tired of things too. And he's actually got kind of a smart ass personality. And, and so does some of his, uh, so do some of his compatriots, and and it's really fun to write the opposing dialogue between these people as they banter back and forth and and uh, pick on each other, and you know, like people that go through trying times together, they develop that kind of personality where they they love each other but they pick on each other mercilessly. So I really wanted that to be part of this book too. Yeah, and and there's also this aspect of what it really means to be you know, a soldier or even like a, you know, a hired contractor that's involved in conflict. And it felt like a, like a model or like Nick Branson and his character and his buddies were kind of like a model of what it should be to be a a real soldier and a real warrior in that regard, um, in any kind of conflict at any point in time in in human history. Uh, Was that intentional, Sheehan? It was. So I wanted to point out, and I do it across all the books, I wanted to point out sort of the warrior ethos, not not specifically about being a soldier or being in the military or being a contractor, but more about people that can tough it out, right? That can suck it up through the really difficult times, whether physical, physically or mentally, and can just push their way through these tough situations. So there is a lot of that in each one of the characters where they're just faced with these ridiculously tough things and they realize they've just got to suck it up and do it. And they might complain about it the whole time. You might have descriptions of how much pain that they're in, but they just do it anyway. And they continue to get faced with adversity, but it helps develop them and their character. So that was something that I wanted to point out in there. I'm definitely not trying to espouse that there's anything more or less positive about having a military experience or not, but there are certain aspects in certain people that lead them towards that type of work. And um, I wanted to sort of point those out. And I think it's good for anybody to read about other people, even if it's fictional, going through adversity because it makes them see adversity differently. And uh, that was just a, a piece of all of all of the characters, um, because I certainly can't just ascribe it to the military or to private military contracting, right? Because you can be in the military and be in a, a cook in a ship, or you can be uh, a Navy SEAL, you know, running around at night with, you know, night observation goggles on trying to save somebody from a foreign country and anything in between, you know, military, private military contractors could be high speed like the character is in this book. Or they could be guarding a fuel depot or delivering food or or driving a truck. I mean, all of those are private military contractors, too. But for the sake of the story, of course, we're looking for action and adventure. So, you know, we go to the extremes with our, our character choices. But I have to say, there was also this very serious aspect I, I picked up, uh, whether it was um, explored more in the in the death spiral, but I think it was also introduced in the in the sandbox where it was really, really deep and insightful. And I don't know if many readers may have picked up on this, but there was, it may be a scene or two where in engaging with the enemy from either side, there is a certain level of respect that's given in, in some scenarios, of course, not you know, when, when uh, civilians get involved and they're, and they're pushed into the, into the theater of war. No, that's that's not um, something that warriors really want to engage with, but like kind of the, the one-on-one or the perseverance, uh, you just go all the way to, to the death, to fight to the death. Um, 
and, and I've read some other um, anecdotes and I've noticed that in, in some of the other documentaries where um, when somebody's fighting to the end and, and they just don't give up, they could have ran, but they don't and they just keep going and that's just their the warrior spirit that and i think you touched upon that a little bit but um it, it was that that aspect somewhat um important to to you or to the novel it is and, and i think anybody that's been in um the military or any military type uh organizations um there is definitely sort of this warrior ethos where there is respect for other warriors even if they are the enemy um and that respect simply goes toward you know they know the amount of training they know that these people are dangerous they know that they uh, can handle weapons that they can defend themselves they know that they're worthy adversaries and i think there's a respect that that happens there um you know there are certainly soldiers that you know give up or you know give in or you know, just don't show that level of bravery and, you know, they're looked down upon, but then there are those who just, you know, will fight to the end. And it doesn't matter if it's your enemy or not. There's just a respect that that there is that level of commitment. And then certainly on the same side, right, you'll see the relationships in this book between the military, between the DSS, the contractors, you know, they've all had similar difficult past experiences. And there is just a level of respect that exists, because, you know, um, these people are all dangerous in their own right, uh, and they're all, you know, on the same side, but each one of them realizes that the most dangerous person that they are dealing with is probably the person that's right next to them. And that's the one that, you know, you have to give the most respect. The one that is closest to you with all of those skills is the most dangerous one, not necessarily the one that's on the other side of the battlefield. So, very high levels of, of respect and deference. Um, at the same time, you know, plenty of jeering and making fun of and, and pushing each other's buttons because that's also part of the culture. Yeah, and Shan, another theme that I, I observed was the, the theme of destabilization and all the political gerrymandering that goes on uh, specifically with funding decisions made at home domestically at the U.S. that impact our efforts abroad and it, it always seems like we're at some brink of um you know world war three or or gulf war three or something like that at any point in time or at least it felt like that back when maybe you you wrote the first book and second book um but what are your thoughts and reflections on that as an insider well you know i think if you're going to deal with the mid-east at all right you're you're going to be dealing with the oil I mean, that is the underlying political point um, of any kind of issue that's happening uh, in the Mideast. You know, whether or not they're talking about, you know, uh, tribal issues or um, royal families or, you know, any of that, it really all comes down to control of the oil because it is a limited um, commodity. And right now, at this point in time, it fuels most of the world. It creates all the plastics. You know, it, it's involved in in everything, medicine, and um, so I, just the control of the flow of oil is the underlying fact of what's going on there. So all political decisions, all military decisions, are are based off of that. 
And they may be branches off of that central theme, but it's always that central theme. Um, you know, when we are addressing in this book the very historical realities of the nuclear inspections that were happening in Iran a number of years ago, um, you know, talking about not wanting Iran to develop a nuclear weapon, uh, nobody's worried that Iran was going <laughs> to lob a nuclear weapon into America. Uh, or really even into any of our allies, although that's exactly what you heard on the news. What was the concern was that here was a very large country with um, leadership that, you know, from time to time is unstable and questionable, having nuclear capabilities so that the people that are making decisions about the oil now have less power in making decisions about the oil. That That's what that was all about. And that's what everything there is about. So I definitely wanted to weave that in. Um, and I also wanted to make sure that everybody understands that when we in America watch the news or get our news and hear about what's going on in the world, we very much do it from our viewpoint. And we very rarely think about everybody else that's involved because it's it's not just us and them there there's many other countries that both we work with and other countries work with that maintain some sort of balance and order in that region so that you know the oil continues to flow so i i wanted to touch on many of those points in the fictional sense of the story but you know the fact that those nuclear inspections happened and the fact that um, tons of money and tons of people were involved and that absolutely nothing was found um, just points at the story that that's not the story. That's not the story at all. The story is the story behind the story. And that's what I wanted to kind of poke at in, in the book while still giving a great action adventure, you know, uh, story. Once again, I thought you pulled that off splendidly. So <laughs> again, kudos to you. It was uh, very entertaining. And I did learn quite a bit there uh, about that. In light of that, I've, I've also pondered a lot about the politics of war. And in, in, in that situation, which you described in the, the whole nuclear weapons. Um, and the book show kind of depicts that in a... Um, complicated chess game sort of way orchestrated by by players and pieces that are you know being manipulated without their without their knowledge or maybe with their knowledge um, but they kind of go along with that and I thought you know that anecdote with the character of uh, Chris who's you taking him back to you know, when he first learned how to do that by manipulating his mother to take him to a football game when he was in the middle of school by being um, getting her roped into baking brownies for the fundraiser for his friend's mother was an apt backdrop and uh, kind of a fun intro into the widely expanded role that he had running the CIA uh, and keeping the money flowing. So that was, uh, without giving too many spoilers away, that was um, uh, kind of a really great way of uh, connecting how kind of individual um, agendas and, and power plays come into the picture. But like the, people just don't show up one day in their roles and, and and just do it they you know they have a they have a history they have a, a background absolutely where, they, where they've developed all right so you... absolutely and and i think all of us have known people that are manipulative in our in our lives and um you know some of the characters uh in the story are, are that way to 
you know, for the continuity of the story and for some of the action to take place. But I just wanted to quickly touch on why would somebody be like that? Because you're exactly right. You know, you don't show up being a 40 year old political, um, you know, appointee and suddenly learn how to, you know, manipulate people in situations. This is, you know, you've been that way your whole life. And, um, you know, most of the people that I know in real life that are that way have been that way since childhood. That's how they learn to get by. That's how they learn to get what they want. Um, and they just, you know, become more sophisticated as they get older. And some people actually land in roles and positions uh, in their life that value that that skill set. So I just wanted to touch on that just to give it another sense of realism. And speaking of realism, um, no podcast of ours would be complete without talking about the jujitsu aspect. So um, I, <laughs> <laughs> I saw that even, there was even for, for our listeners who are avid uh, martial arts aficionados and and want to learn and hear about jujitsu. Well, there's even more jujitsu baked into the scenes to my delight and probably to your delight as well who are listening here. And that some of those were right off of our charts from uh, Kobukai. Absolutely. And yeah, I had a lot of fun with that. And and not only the, you know, the male characters, but also a female character in in the book. Um, there's plenty of jujitsu that happens in in uh, settings that you just normally wouldn't think of. Um, you know, so there are some some chase scenes and. And fight scenes where um, the realism of uh, fighting in our our natural day to day environment are are taken into account, and uh, had a lot of fun with that. Um, and of course, wanted to weave in realistic jujitsu techniques and and the appropriate ones for specific attacks. Uh, but I also wanted to kind of weave in that you know jujitsu in real life doesn't happen on mats. You know, it can happen in a hallway or in a store or in a room or on the on the street. And and what is that like? And what might be the ramifications of you know throwing somebody around or you know that kind of stuff in an environment that isn't this controlled dojo environment so i had a, a ton of fun with that and having had the experience from the first book of how to write jujitsu um it, it was much easier and much more fun and i was able to get more descriptive in this second book of the jujitsu scenes yeah and and for all the martial arts uh practitioners out there i think we all at some point wish that we can test out our knowledge on the literal streets but uh, simultaneously terrified of uh, the other outcome that could that could happen if we don't uh succeed but it's it's clear from some of the scenes that you've uh you've described how effective um you know our our techniques could could potentially be uh in a, in a real world encounter can you talk a little bit about how uh you chose the specific techniques that you described in the book there there were no fight scenes that um, were based off of any reality uh, that i've had myself or from other students it was all imagined and fictional however i did use um, a description as a basis for how i thought about writing the scene so i did have a past student that got into a real life altercation where he was with his family coming out of a restaurant and got into an altercation with some uh, drunk guys and their girlfriends, and he had to use uh, jujitsu to defend himself. And it happened very quickly. And some of it, he wasn't even sure how he pulled it off. But he also mentioned to me that while this was going on, so while the physical was happening, he was th 
thinking of things. He was actually thinking about what was happening, not not the jujitsu part, but like the disbelief that that was happening right now and that it's happening on this freezing cold night in a gravel parking lot. And, you know, just kind of this internal commentary was going on in his head while he was, you know, defending himself over, you know, two or three seconds, you know, a very, very quick altercation. So that was one of the things I really wanted to weave into some of the fight scenes in the book, which can be comical, but, you know, we've got these things happening and these jujitsu moves going on yet at the same time, the character is kind of in disbelief of like, you know, um, did that just happen right now? You know, kind of thing. And, um, I, I kind of gave like two sides of the fight, the, the action, and then the, the internal monologue that happens while, while it's happening. So I had a lot of fun with that. Yeah, very realistic. And I think you've mentioned also, Shihan, in the past, uh, maybe it was on a different podcast or maybe in one of our classes where this, what we train in, in Kobukai Jiu-Jitsu is probably the closest thing that you've encountered uh, outside of the military. Yes. You know, I think we have a very, very realistic um, Jiu-Jitsu class and it's not sport oriented. It's all self-defense oriented. We do it in uniform, out of uniform, wearing uh, regular clothes in different settings. You know, we do completely unrehearsed self-defense all the time. So it gives you uh, a great idea of what it's going to be like. You know, the only thing that we can't really interject into a, a class is the unexpectedness of, of um, a real self-defense situation and often the chaos that surrounds it where they're, you know, it's in a, in a inappropriate setting. You, you just don't expect, you know, a fight to happen, you know, in a, in a restaurant or, you know, in uh, sitting in your car or, you know, at a family gathering, you know, those type of things that impact you mentally and the amount of chaos around that uh, and other people screaming and yelling and try to pull people off of each other. You know, that's very hard to replicate uh, and also very dangerous. But I think we get as close as we possibly can to get people trained for, um, you know, sort of that physical and mental aspect by by just giving them a ton of adversity in very uncomfortable situations in the dojo so that they have a better chance of dealing with that in real life. Well, Shion, I had a blast reading the the contractor, that spiral. It was a great continuation, but different. Um, as you described earlier, that really gave it a, an element of uh, novelty as as well. So it wasn't the same old thing. And not that that, that would have been a bad thing at all uh, coming from you um, in, <laughs> in your first book. But was there any feedback or criticism that you received in either the, the sandbox or the debt spiral? No, it's all been very positive feedback. Um, plenty of people that have been in the military really enjoyed the you know, the realism and the detail. Uh, many people commented about just how you set the scene and how they learned about things. You know, you mention a specific mosque or a specific town or what it's like to drive across a specific area or the history of something they found, um, even though they're sort of sidebars, they found those to be interesting and entertaining uh, besides the action. And, and a lot of comment about how it was, you can't put it down because everything just kind of draws you on to the next chapter so quickly. So um, I've taken that all as, as very positive feedback. And I'm, I'm, I'm more happy that people are just entertained 
Um, I'm not trying to portray any kind of expertise in anything, but I want it to feel real to the reader and I want them to just be entertained and, and finish the book saying, man, that was a, that was a fun read. I can't wait for the next one. So, um, you know, especially when we get into the second book where it's a completely different setting and now Nick is doing, you know, executive and government protection and they're in Turkey and Iran and he thinks it's going to be a lot easier than being a soldier in Iraq. And of course, everything goes wrong as usual. And, you know, he's going to deal with all the craziness. Um, you know, it just, it was more of the same thing so that you knew what you were getting, um, but completely different people, completely different settings and a, a new voice to keep the reader uh, entertained. So I, I feel like I've done that from the feedback that I've received. Yeah, and I can't wait for the uh, the last installment of this series myself. Yes, the third book will be called The Contractor, Final Contract. And I think people are going to be really surprised by this book. Um, it takes a very different turn from the first two books, although tons of continuity and you feel like it is an extension of the other books, but it is definitely something uh, completely new and I think people are going to find this uh, entertaining in its own way especially the fact that you're living it as it happens and it also addresses many contemporary situations that people are going to recognize and, and feel and, and have emotion about and, and I think that's going to make that one uh, uh, pretty entertaining also. With that lead up I, I just can't wait so uh Yes, and of course, all these books are available on Amazon or Amazon Splash Kindle. They're available in Kindle and ebook version, and also the good old paperback if you like to hold a book in your hand and sit on the beach or read on a plane. Um, those are available too. So uh, feel free to go there, and, and I really hope that uh, the readers in, enjoy the stories. Thank you very much for uh, spending the time talking about your novels here. And we look forward to another podcast when your new book comes out. Absolutely. And, and maybe even in between, we can go back and hit on our old subject matter, good old jujitsu on the Jujitsu Master Podcast. For sure. Looking forward to it, Chihan. Thank you again and Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you, Sri. Thanks. <laughs>